Section 4 of Tales of English Minsters, Canterbury Cathedral, Kent, and St. Paul's Cathedral, London, by Elizabeth Wilson Grierson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4, St. Paul's Cathedral, London, Part 2. The Reformation was yet a long way off, but there were two men in the country who wanted to put an end to this state of affairs, and they wanted to do so for two very good reasons. You have all heard of John Wycliffe, the earliest of the English reformers. He was one of those two men, and he wanted to weaken the power of Rome, because he saw that the poor people of this country were being robbed in order to enrich the Pope and his favorites, who, as we have seen, were put into high places in the church. So he began to point out the abuses that existed, and to urge people not to submit to them any longer. The other man was a powerful noble, John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster, as Shakespeare calls him, and I am afraid that the reason why he wanted the power taken from the clergy was that he hoped that when they could no longer collect great sums of money from the common people, he and his brother nobles might be able to do so instead. So when, one day, Wycliffe was summoned to appear before the Bishop of London, Bishop Courtenay, to answer for the heretical notions which it was reported that he was spreading, the Duke of Lancaster espoused his cause and stood by his side. It must have been a curious scene, the grave bishop in his robes, seated on his throne, with his advisers round him, the thin, worn priest from Lutterworth, with his pale, studious face and black gown, and the proud noble who was at that time one of the most powerful men in the country. Some of the citizens had crept into the church to hear what the monk had to say, but they did not hear him say very much, for the Duke of Lancaster soon began to wrangle with the bishop. He hated the clergy, because he was so envious of their position and power that they had over the simple folk, and his pride could not brook the questions that the bishop put to his friend. At last he lost his temper altogether, and after speaking very rudely to the prelate, he threatened to drag him out of the church by the hair of his head. In an instant the listening citizens sprang to their feet. They were not very interested in Wycliffe's reforms, probably at that time they did not know very much about them. But this powerful duke was no friend of theirs, and they were enraged at the thought that he dared come into their cathedral and threaten their bishop. With one accord they rushed to the belfry and tolled the great bell, and when, as was their duty, crowds of other citizens gathered in the churchyard to see what had happened, they told them, in excited tones, that John of Gaunt was in the church with his followers, and threatened to lay hands on the bishop. Then a perfect tempest arose. Some of the crowd rushed into the church, declaring that they would murder the duke. Others went off to his palace in the Strand, determined to break into it and pillage it in order to punish him for his insolence and they were in such deadly earnest that they would have carried out both threats had not bishop courtenay himself interfered and saved his enemy from their violence just before the reformation the great church was at the very height of its glory from an outward point of view at least we read that there were no less than one hundred and thirty clergy who were supposed to minister there and that there were so many people connected with it schoolmasters schoolboys singing men choir boys beadsmen bookbinders sextons gardeners bell ringers etc that employment must have been given to more than a thousand people 
it all seems very grand and glorious but if we read further we find that it had grown just like the temple in our lord's time there was a great deal of outward magnificence and yet the very purpose that the church had been built for the service and worship of god was in danger of being forgotten instead of being kept as god's house entirely for his worship we find that the great nave was the fashionable meeting-place of the good folk of london and they used it as we should use a promenade to-day francis osborne an old historian writes it was the fashion in those days for the principal gentry lords and courtiers and men of all professions to meet in st paul's by eleven of the clock and walk in the middle aisle till twelve and after dinner from three till six during which time some discoursed of business and others of news then came the reformation and as always happens when a great change like that is taking place people were so zealous to sweep away all the abuses that had crept in that they lost their heads as we say and did many wrong and unseemly things it was right and needful that the church should be reformed but it was not right nor needful that all the splendid carving and decorated stonework and beautifully illuminated books and gold and silver altar vessels which had been given for the service of god by pious men and women should be broken by hammers or burned or carried away and melted down to fill the pockets of worthless noblemen it was right that the nave should no longer be the place of resort for all the fashionable loungers in the city but it did not improve matters when the same nave was turned into cavalry barracks for oliver cromwell's soldiers and the rough men were allowed to play games and behave in any way that they liked in the church no the history of that time is not pleasant reading and we feel almost glad when we hear that first of all the wooden spire was struck by lightning and set on fire and then that the whole church was burned down by the great fire that devastated london in september sixteen sixty six for then a new beginning could be made and those unhappy old stories forgotten Two you all know about the great fire of london how it came after the plague and how it seemed such a calamity at the time but proved after all a blessing in disguise for it burned down all the old plague-infested unhealthy wooden houses which were so crowded together that the streets were narrow and dark and made room for better buildings and wider streets and brought in a healthier mode of living altogether just before the fire broke out a proposal had been made to restore the old cathedral and a famous architect sir christopher wren had been called in to discuss the matter he had agreed to undertake the work and was prepared to do so when the great fire took place and when it was over there was nothing left of the church but the blackened walls then people shook their heads and said that it would be impossible to restore it a new cathedral might be built somewhere else but the st paul's that they had known on ludgate hill had gone forever but sir christopher wren differed from them it would be impossible to restore the church he said or even to rebuild it on its old foundation but there was no reason why a new foundation should not be laid and a new church built upon it that was all very well answered the objectors to the scheme but how did dr wren propose to take down the walls and level the old foundations 
he suggested gunpowder and with a little care he could have blown down the walls quite safely but a stupid master builder thought that he could do the work himself without the architect superintending and he set to work one morning and used such a big charge of the explosive that a great many of the half-ruined houses in the neighbourhood fell with the force of the explosion and people got such a fright that they objected to gunpowder being used at all the famous architect was not dismayed however at this opposition he believed in the proverb that says where there's a will there's a way so he procured a great beam of wood forty feet long and had it covered at both ends with iron then he slung this beam up in a wooden erection something like a triangle and used it as a battering ram to break down the walls at first it appeared as if it would be in vain the workmen battered at the walls for a whole day and not a stone fell but wren persevered and the next day he was rewarded for the great buttresses fell at last with a crash and he was able to proceed with his work and this he did most thoroughly some one has said of him that he built for eternity and as far as any man can do so the saying is true everyone knows that the security of a building depends greatly upon the kind of foundation it rests upon no matter how well built it is no matter how showy the walls may be if the foundation is not firm and solid sooner or later it must fall to pieces unless something is done to repair it christopher wren knew of this danger and the first thing that he set his workmen to do was to dig down forty feet into the earth to find out if the ground on which he intended to build was quite solid and secure doubtless many people laughed at him and said that he was too particular but he did not care and they stopped laughing when it was discovered that right down at the northeast corner there was a pit and if the new cathedral had been built over this sooner or later the ground would have sunk and the wall of the building have cracked and in all probability fallen to pieces however dr wren made his workmen dig deeper till they got to the bottom of this pit then he filled it up with a pier of solid stone it took him a whole year to do this but at the end of that time he was ready to begin the church knowing that underneath it was a foundation that was absolutely secure then arose the great cathedral that we see today it took some thirty years to build and when it was finished the highest stone in the lantern that rested on the dome was laid in its place by sir christopher wren's son but now we learn something about sir christopher that shows that he was a good as well as a clever man do you remember what is said in the Bible about people who can rule their own spirits and are slow to be angry? That they are really greater than the men who conquer cities and whom the world admires. Tried by this standard, Sir Christopher was a really great man, for he was not only clever enough to build St. Paul's Cathedral, but he could rule his own spirit and not vex himself over the way in which his enemies treated him the story of sir christopher wren's life for he was knighted as a reward for his work is as interesting as any of the stories connected with st paul's cathedral he was the son of a wiltshire clergyman and his love of architecture dated from a time when the roof of his father's church had grown so old that it threatened to fall down and as often happens in a country parish there were not very many rich men living there who could give money to pay for the building of a new one 
so the vicar determined that instead of paying for an architect he would draw the plans and superintend the building of the roof himself and we can imagine how little christopher would hear all about the new church roof and how he would look over his father's shoulder and watch him when he was drawing the plans and how he would spend all his playtime in the church looking at the joiners putting up the wooden beams and the other workmen working on the walls while his father went up and down superintending everything and very likely lending a helping hand himself perhaps it was in these early days that the boy determined that he too would build churches when he was grown up then he had an uncle matthew who was bishop of ely and as he grew older he would go and visit him and would wander across from the palace into queen ethelred's beautiful minster church and stand and look up in wonder at the lantern tower and his uncle would tell him the story of how it once fell and how alan de walsingham built it up again and perhaps it was that which gave him the idea which he carried out afterwards at st paul's of a great church with an enormous dome in the centre of it under which thousands of people could assemble as they do on sunday afternoons at st paul's to-day and listen to the sermon of some great preacher he did something else first however for he was very fond of watching the stars and when he went to oxford he watched them so closely and learned so much about them that he was made professor of astronomy but although he was made professor of astronomy he seems to have gone on all the time studying architecture and drawing plans of churches and at last king charles heard of him and asked him to draw some plans of churches for him in this way he became known as a clever architect and when the great fire took place and a large part of london had to be rebuilt he not only built a new cathedral but forty-two other churches as well besides which he built marlborough house and a great part of greenwich hospital so you see that he had a useful busy life and it was a very long one as well for he lived till he was an old man of ninety-one he was not very kindly treated towards the end of his life and this was because of what is called political jealousy it had been the stuart kings who had brought him into notice and given him the post of surveyor-general but when the house of hanover came into power their followers said oh we cannot have any of the friends of the stuarts holding good posts we must take them from them and give them to those of our own party and so sir christopher wren's office was taken from him and given to another man and something else was done that vexed him quite as much as losing his post he had meant his great cathedral to stand as it stands to-day with an open space all around it some one suggested that it would look much better if it were enclosed by a wall and in spite of sir christopher's remonstrances a wall was built which quite spoiled the effect in his eyes he might have gone up and down the world trying to prove to everyone that his idea was best and he might have made himself and his friends very unhappy over the unkindness and injustice that had been shown him but instead of this he only shrugged his shoulders when he looked at the unsightly wall and said with a little laugh that ladies thought nothing looked well without an edging then he retired quietly to hampton court where he had a house and occupied himself until he died with his old hobby of astronomy and with reading theology and philosophy 
we read that occasionally the old man would give himself a treat and do you know what the treat was he would come to london and walk quietly up the strand to st paul's churchyard and stand and look for a while at the great and beautiful cathedral that he had built and then he would go home feeling quite content and happy for he knew that it would stand for long centuries after the ugly wall had been pulled down again and that future generations would forget all the unkind and untrue things that people had said about him while they would always remember that it was he christopher wren who was the builder of st paul's and there was something else i think which must have made him very happy towards the close of his life in those days people were not above taking bribes that is they would take money let us say from a timber merchant and promise that they would use his timber whether it was good or bad or from a stonemason and use his stones no matter how badly they were hewn but wren had never done this his hands were clean and he left such a splendid name for uprightness and honesty behind him that after his death someone wrote of him in a corrupt age all testimonies leave him spotless now let us go inside the cathedral and walk round it although it is so full of monuments that it is impossible to tell you the story of each as we look at them we realize that st paul's still keeps its character of the citizen's church in westminster abbey kings and poets and writers lie buried or have monuments put up to their memory but here in st paul's most of the monuments are those of national heroes of men who have lived and died for the empire we will just look at one or two if as we walk up the nave we keep to our right hand we come on the north side to a recumbent statue of bronze and we are almost certain to find one or two people standing looking at it and perhaps someone has laid a tiny bunch of flowers against the slab on which the figure rests for this is the monument erected to general gordon and there is no man who has died in recent years whose memory is held more in honour by the people of england for he died in the attempt to save women and children from deadly peril and these poor people were not english they had not even white skins but were sudanese who lived in far-away khartoum i expect that most of you have read the life of this great man but for the sake of those who have not i will tell you a little about him to begin with he was what we call unique that is there is no one else who is quite like him and no one can read the story of his life without thinking of two words hero and saint somehow he reminds us of a strong climber who spends his days toiling up a great mountain and always getting higher and higher and nearer and nearer heaven while most of us are content to remain down in the valley where life is not so hard but where the air is less pure and the roads are dusty and just as we read in the old stories about heroes having one possession that kept them strong such as a magic sword or shield or helmet so we can clearly see one thing in general gordon's life that made him what he was something that enabled him to be brave and chivalrous and modest to care absolutely nothing about praise or blame or reward or even money the thing that so many people care so much about and that one thing was absolute faith in god and in god's providence most of us live our lives as something that belongs to ourselves and we make our own plans and choose our own careers and we think twice before we do this or that 
trying to see what the consequences of our act will be to general gordon life was simply a time that was given to him to do god's will and he was certain that whatever came to him was god's will so it was all the same to him whether the days brought joy or sorrow praise or blame riches or poverty life or death he was a good soldier of the queen for queen victoria was living then but he was also a good soldier of jesus christ perhaps one of the best that has ever enlisted in that great army for he took his orders and carried them out to the best of his power never questioning never grumbling quite certain whatever the consequences turned out to be that everything was right and it was this great faith that made him go promptly and fearlessly into danger that other men might have shrunk from and with reason he is sometimes called chinese gordon because once when there was a rebellion in china the emperor asked for a british officer to help to quell it and gordon was sent the rebels had entrenched themselves in forts and gordon used to lead bands of soldiers to storm these forts carrying only a little cane in his hand with which he pointed out to the men what he wanted them to do and the chinese were so amazed that they thought that the little cane was enchanted and they called it his magic wand and believed that it protected him from all harm after the rebellion was quelled he came home and was stationed at gravesend where he was employed in constructing forts he might have been puffed up by the reputation that he had earned in china and have become proud and self-conscious but instead of that he lived very quietly visiting infirmaries and ragged schools in his leisure time and he so interested himself in the poor boys whom he found in the streets that he would take them into his own house and keep them there until he found an opportunity to send them to sea and thus give them a fresh start in life now comes the story of the soudan if you look at the map of africa you will see south of egypt a tract of country bearing that name i have not time to tell you how it came to be under british protection but it did and the natives who had been very badly treated before settled down to live quietly and peacefully under british rule then a man arose called the mahdi who gathered together thousands of arabs and raided the soudan vanquishing the egyptian troops who tried to fight against them the mahdi became very powerful and it was felt that it would take too many of our soldiers to hold the country against him so the british government determined to give it up but we could not leave all the poor soudanese people to be massacred by the arabs so it was determined to try to get them safely out of the country into egypt and gordon was sent out from england to do this he was accompanied by a friend of his colonel stewart and they went to khartoum which if you look at the map you will see is the capital of the soudan and stands on the banks of the nile surrounded by deserts they succeeded in sending twenty five hundred people away in safety and then the mahdi and his followers hemmed them in colonel stewart tried to escape up the nile and summon help from egypt but his boat was wrecked and he was murdered and then gordon was left alone the only englishman in khartoum it is very sad and yet it is grand to read how that lonely soldier defended the city for almost a year with no one to help him except natives and with a howling mob of arabs outside the walls 
he lived in what was called the palace and day after day he used to go up to the roof and look in vain down the river and all over the desert for the help which he expected would be sent from england and which never came it did not come in time at least for it was too late in being sent and when at last after much danger a relieving force did reach the city it was only to find that it had fallen into the hands of the arabs two days before and that its brave defender along with the rest of the inhabitants had been killed can you imagine the thrill of horror and regret that swept over england when the news came home it was felt to be such a terrible thing that one of our countrymen should have been sent out to attempt such a dangerous and difficult task and then left alone for months fighting against such overpowering odds and that when at last help was sent we should have to confess that it was sent too late and yet to general gordon facing death alone in that far-off sudanese town it was not terrible it was simply a bit of god's will listen to the words that he wrote just ten days before the end came when he knew quite well that if succor did not come speedily it need not come at all after writing good-bye to all his friends he adds i am quite happy thank god and like lawrence i have tried to do my duty these are not the words of a man who sees death coming and is afraid they are the words of one who was quite happy because he had done his life work as well as he could and was content to go home to god no matter if the way thither were very rough and very lonely his body was never found probably it was hacked in pieces by the mahdi's wild followers and yet he had a funeral for although englishmen may be slow to act they act surely and fourteen long years after gordon's death the Sudan was retaken, and after the great battle of Omdurman, Lord Kitchener, with his victorious army, entered Khartoum one peaceful Sunday morning, and what do you think was the first thing that he did? He took his troops, British and Egyptian, into the open space in front of the ruined palace where Gordon had fallen, and formed them into three sides of a square, while he and his generals stood in the centre and then after the british and egyptian flags had been run up to the roof of the palace and a royal salute had been fired a little group of clergymen stepped forward they represented all parts of the church for soldiers of all creeds wished to take part in gordon's funeral then while solemn minute guns were fired a presbyterian minister read the seventeenth psalm which tells how god's people whenever or however they die will behold his face in righteousness and how they will be satisfied when they awake in his likeness then an english clergyman said the lord's prayer and an old roman catholic priest with snow-white hair said a memorial prayer for gordon and those who had fallen with him then the scottish pipers wailed out a dirge and the dark egyptian band played gordon's favourite hymn abide with me after that the soldiers were dismissed from their ranks and were at liberty to wander up and down and everybody down to the youngest bugler had a glad feeling in his heart that although they did not know the exact spot where general gordon's bones were resting they had done their best after fourteen years to give him christian burial 
there are many more memorials here of men about whom we could tell the most interesting stories had we only the time here is a monument to sir john moore who was killed at Karuna, and who as doubtless you have learned at school was buried darkly at dead of night before the defeated english army took to their boats and here is one to sir john howard the great prison reformer see he carries a key in his hand to show us how he unlocked the prison doors and brought help and comfort to the wretched inmates far more hopeless and neglected in his day than they are in ours and here is a representation of a bishop blessing little black children that is bishop heber first bishop of calcutta who wrote a great many hymns some of which i am sure you know holy 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 lord god almighty from greenland's icy mountains and brightest and best of the sons of the morning here is a beautiful memorial a bronze angel stooping to lift the figure of a wounded yet crowned warrior let us read the inscription under it for it tells of forty-three thousand men sons of the empire who flocked from our colonies from australia india ceylon new zealand and south africa to help us to fight against the boers and who gave their lives for the motherland nearby is a great window representing our lord healing the sick which was placed there as a thanksgiving for the recovery of our king from a very dangerous illness when he was prince of wales look up to the dome do you see the paintings there they are so far above us that we can hardly see them properly but if we were nearer we should see that they are scenes from the life of st paul they were painted by an artist called sir john thornhill and he almost lost his life when he was painting them indeed he would have done so had it not been for the promptitude of a friend of his a great scaffold had been erected for him to stand on while he was painting and it makes us almost giddy to think of the height that it must have been from the floor one day he was up there working busily and luckily a friend was with him for he stepped back to see the effect of his work and went so near the edge of the scaffold that another step would have taken him over to be dashed to pieces on the floor below his friend saw his danger and seizing a wet paintbrush flung it at the painting the artist rushed forward to intercept the brush and so his life was saved now let us enter the choir and look at this wonderful carving on the stalls this was done by a famous woodcarver named grinley gibbons whose story is as well worth knowing as that of sir christopher wren he was partly english and partly dutch and was born in rotterdam he was very fond of carving and he used to copy all the things that he saw growing outside fruits and flowers and sprays of leaves and berries and he became a very clever carver indeed he came to england and made up his mind to work hard at his art and in order to have time and quietness to do so he hired a tiny house at deptford and went and lived there after he had been there some time he determined to do a really great piece of work he was very fond of a wonderful picture of the crucifixion which had been painted by a venetian artist named tintoretto and he made up his mind that he would copy this in wood and frame it in a wreath of carved fruits and flowers it was a very ambitious thing to do but he succeeded beautifully although it took him a long while and cost him a great deal of time and work 
now it chanced that near his little cottage there was a great mansion called say's court in which lived a very wise rich and cultured man named john evelyn we know all about him because he did what perhaps some of you do he kept a diary which has been preserved and which we can read today and luckily for grinling gibbons john evelyn got to know him and was a very good friend to him if we read evelyn's diary we learn how it came about he tells us how one day he was walking by mere accident in a field near say's court when he noticed a poor solitary thatched house he thought he would like to see who lived there and he went and knocked but the door was shut so he looked in at the window and he saw the young artist working at his beautiful piece of carving which was almost finished evelyn was so astonished at finding such a skilful craftsman living so humbly that he asked him if he might come in and speak to him gibbons opened the door quite civilly and evelyn tells us that when he saw the work close at hand he was quite amazed at its beauty and delicacy he asked the young carver why he lived in such a lonely spot and gibbons told him that he wanted to have time to work hard at his profession without interruption then evelyn who was always ready to do a kind action and to help people volunteered to introduce him to some great man who might perhaps buy the piece of carving and ask the sum for which gibbons would sell it the craftsman replied modestly that he was but a beginner but he thought that the carving was worth a hundred pounds mr evelyn thought it was quite worth a hundred pounds too and so the very next time that he went to court he told king charles about it and asked him if he might invite the young artist to bring the piece of work to whitehall when it was finished in order that the king might see it king charles said yes and kind-hearted john evelyn was delighted for he felt certain that as soon as the king saw it he would buy it but alas his expectations were dashed to the ground by a french peddling woman who sold petticoats and fawns and baubles out of france to the queen and ladies of her court and this was how it happened when the piece of carving was brought to the palace the king admired it very much and would have bought it but he thought that he would ask his wife first how she liked it so he gave orders that it was to be carried into the queen's apartments so that she could see it she also admired it and was anxious that the king should buy it but an old frenchwoman chanced to be in the room the peddling woman as evelyn calls her who was in the habit of bringing over gloves and fans and things of that sort from france and selling them to the court ladies when she heard the price that charles proposed to give for the carving she was afraid that the queen would run short of money and so would not be able to buy so many things from her as she usually did so when the king left the room she began to criticize the carving and to find fault with it and the foolish queen believed that what she said was true and when the king came back she persuaded him not to buy it so poor grinling had to carry it back to his little cottage at deptford and he afterwards sold it to a nobleman for eighty pounds but although his first attempt at helping grinling gibbons had not succeeded very well kind mr evelyn did not give it up he happened to know sir christopher wren and as sir christopher was busy at that time over the building of the new cathedral he went and saw him and told him about his protege and asked him if he could not give him something to do and sir christopher who was looking about for someone to carve the woodwork of the stalls went down and saw gibbon's work and was so pleased with it that he engaged him at once to come and help him and of course when gibbons did this he soon became famous and had no more trouble in obtaining orders 
now perhaps you may feel inclined to ask if all the monuments in st paul's cathedral are erected to the memory of men who died far away in other lands it looks like it does it not for we have seen gordon's monument who died at khartoum and moore's who died in spain and bishop heber's who died in india and that of the colonial soldiers who died in south africa and if we go on looking we shall find very many more to the memory of soldiers and sailors who fought our battles and guarded our shores but whose bones are resting in foreign lands or mayhap under the rolling waves of the sea but if we go down to the crypt we shall find that there are some graves there two of them i am sure that you would like to look at for a moment because they are the graves of two men whose memory will be kept green as long as the english nation lasts one of them was her greatest soldier and the other her greatest sailor i need not tell you their names need i arthur duke of wellington the iron duke as men called him and horatio lord nelson who died at trafalgar on board the victory there are two monuments erected to them upstairs in the great church that to wellington is enormous and stands just across the aisle from general gordon's nelson's monument is on the other side of the cathedral just at the corner of the south transept and is more interesting to look at than that of wellington for it represents the famous admiral standing with one sleeve empty for as you remember his right arm was shot away at the battle of teneriffe while underneath are carved the names of his greatest sea fights copenhagen nile and trafalgar lower still is the british lion emblem of the land he fought for and the figure of britannia pointing out the great sailor to two little middies and telling them to follow in his steps but when in eighteen o five nelson died on board his battleship the english people felt that it was not enough that a monument should be put up to his memory in the citizen church of their capital they wanted his body to rest amongst them so it was brought home and amid general lamentation was buried in this still and silent crypt forty-seven years passed and once more the whole nation was mourning for the duke of wellington was dead he had not died in action as did nelson but had fought his fights and won his victories and conquered napoleon and had lived to come home and enter parliament and serve his country as a politician as well as a soldier and when the question arose as to where he should be buried it was felt to be fitting that he the greatest soldier as tennyson called him should be brought and laid beside the greatest sailor and that the sound of those he wrought for and the feet of those he fought for should echo round his bones for evermore do you know how his body was brought through the streets of london look at this enormous funeral car standing under this dark arch and you will see it looks so strange and fantastic that at first sight you hardly know what it is meant for but you must remember that it was not made out of ordinary wood like carts and wagons it was made out of iron out of old cannon which had done their part in the great soldiers victories look at the names of these victories twenty-four of them engraved upon the body of the car you can think what a solemn procession it must have been as the mighty soldier and prudent statesman was borne upon it through more than a million silent onlookers to his last long rest in st paul's here is another grave that we must look at ere we leave the crypt 
it cannot be an important one you say for there is no monument over it only an inscription ah yes but read the inscription lector si monumentum requiris circumspeci reader if thou requirest a monument look around that tells us at once whose grave it is it is christopher wren's and as we do his bidding and look around and above us and as we ascend the stairs once more and enter the magnificent cathedral and walk down the nave to the great west door we feel that no smaller monument could have been erected to the man whose marvellous skill planned it all end of section four end of tales of english minsters canterbury cathedral kent and st paul's cathedral london by elizabeth wilson grierson